You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. abstract disputes over race and class, identity politics versus class reductionism and so on. These are obstacles, but it's also an obstacle when we can't conceive of any other form of human life, that we think that higher wages, universal health care, and so on are the only possible goals that can be achieved, and that winning elections and working within the existing political structure is the only way that we can achieve them. The overall perspective has to be one which says that we can conceive of human life in which people are not dependent on wages for survival. Not only that they should make higher wages, but that we should not have to depend on wages in order just to live. And that we should be able to control our our own lives as members of a human community, rather than transferring our power to a minority that defends its position with weapons and prisons. It's possible, I think, to conceive of a society beyond that. What is the relationship between race and class and which should be the primary focus to address on the level of political organizing? Questions such as these, argues our guest Assad Heder, misses the mark as they seek to make determinations about the world at the level of conceptual abstractions. Furthermore, he suggests, such questions slide into a muddled debate between advancing either universal or particularist demands or identity politics or class politics, when the reality, according to our guest, is that the abolition of white supremacy is by necessity a universal program as well as the waging of class struggle. He elaborates these viewpoints and discusses the pitfalls of viewing concepts such as race and class as categories of identity rather than societal structures on this episode of Labor Wave. Before we get into the episode, we want to announce again that we are a proud sponsor of the upcoming opening space for the Radical Imagination 3 conference. That is happening April 3rd to 4th, and you can get more information at the website imaginativespaces.org. We are also going to be releasing a mini-series aligning with the themes and concepts behind Opening Space for the Radical Imagination that we are calling After the Revolution. Our upcoming and first episode of this mini-series is going to be with Raj Patel, and that episode is going to be called The Dinner Table After the Revolution. That episode will be coming out in February, and it will be followed by many more, and we hope you keep out on the lookout for the After the Revolution series. Please spread our content on social media and SoundCloud. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, as well as Apple Podcasts, and at our website, laborwaveradio.com. title of your book is Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. And I was able to listen to a presentation you gave at the Socialism 2019 conference in Chicago. At that presentation, you talked about what happens to debate when people seek to try to discover what the relationship between concepts like race and class is 
but use these concepts in a way that's maybe amorphous or vague or at the level of the abstract and how such types of conceptual abstractions just lead to bad analysis and fruitless debate. Specifically, I recall you described this debate as becoming one of a geometrical dimension. So what do you mean by that? And can you elaborate on this a little bit more? The important thing is to have some clarity about what we're doing when we use concepts like this. Um, when we talk about race and class, we're not talking about discrete objects that already exist fully formed in the world. Uh, in the world, what we have are very complex structures, um, multiple factors determining phenomena, and uh, abstractions like race or class are ways that we uh, try to grasp aspects of what's happening. If you make an abstraction uh, like race and class, and then you try to determine what relationship they have at the level of the abstract, I think you're going in the wrong direction because already in the world, they exist as part of a unitary complex process. In specific situations, in specific circumstances, we'll see that there is a relationship between what we can conceptually identify as race and class. And that's going to be very important for any political analysis and, a, and political practice. But to try to determine their relation in the abstract is going to lead down uh, many false paths. When I talk about a geometrical relationship, I'm kind of alluding to the idea that on the one hand, we have a common language of intersectionality, of intersecting lines. Now, I think that when the term was proposed, it had a really specific usage uh, about situations in courtrooms uh, when it was advanced by Crenshaw. But to generalize that and say that race and class intersect is a very abstract and general claim. Uh, I don't think it actually illuminates the interactions between what we describe as race and class in the world. On the other hand, uh, this is not a common way of describing it, but by illustration, I, I, I want to point to another kind of geometrical shape, which would be that of the circle, which would say that all points are defined by one central point. So the idea that there is one uh, unitary and essential cause for everything. Uh, and usually that's something you hear from uh, people who identify as Marxists, who want to say that class is the ultimate cause of any relationship of domination and so on. I don't think that this is a very good way of understanding Marxism, and I think it's also uh, not going to be the most constructive way of understanding phenomena in which uh, race is crucial, like the example of racial slavery in the United States, all the way up through the um, uh, continued existence of racial oppression today. So what happens when we use abstractions like this to begin our analytical discourse to our political strategies? Like, is your concern that the political strategies that we build upon these abstractions just lead to things like reactionary politics, black nationalism, which you discuss a lot in your book, or other problems? Well, we always begin in some sense with abstractions uh, when we use words at all. What we have to do, what Marx characterizes as a materialist analysis, is going from the abstract to the concrete. That is adding back the multiple complex factors and phenomena that have generated that uh, abstraction and arriving at a more complex analysis rather than a more simple one. So if you say that everything can be explained by class, you're going from the concrete to the abstract. If you say that uh, we have this concept of class and we need to understand how class 
actually exists in the world, how it's actually active in the world. Then we're going to add back the complexity and multiplicity of other factors. And the problem with that is that it doesn't lend itself readily to slogans and easy conclusions. It's not very memeable, right? It's not memeable. It doesn't, it, it's not easy to tweet. And it doesn't give you the idea that you can draw conclusions with absolute certainty about politics, about, about your social analysis or your political practice. Now, looking, looking from the perspective of Marxism, this is the greatest danger, that getting tied up with abstractions and taking them to be the ultimate reality will prevent us from having an, a concrete analysis of the concrete situation. And that's the precondition for a political practice. Now, in your talk at the conference, you also said, in addition to these problems and why you say that this isn't a good idea to start with these conceptual abstractions, that you also don't think race and class should be understood as categories of identity. What did you mean by that? Words bring a lot of baggage, you know, they carry a lot of ideological weight. And so there's this common assumption that, which actually counterposes class to identity, though sometimes class gets folded in as a part of the list of different identities when you have people talking about classism and so on, which is a very different thing from talking about uh, class struggle. The, the idea is that if you're talking about race and gender, you're talking about identity. So if you're against identity politics, you think that race and gender aren't important or something like that. But I think that the word identity is doing a lot of work there and that there are some risks uh, when we use that word because identity etymologically it refers to sameness if we carry through the history of the term we can say it it has something to do with the formation of the self uh, what is it that makes me who i am in distinction from others uh, that that causes me to be the same over time in different places and so on so the category the the characteristics that inhere in me i think that if we want to understand a, a social structural phenomenon like race, we can't begin with how I see myself, who I perceive myself to be, what I think my characteristics are. Race is a social phenomenon which is determined independently of me and how I see myself, and then ascribes certain things to me, inserts me in particular categories, puts me into particular Material relations, just in the sense that uh, racial slavery was a material relation. And that's what has to be uh, understood if we want to talk about race. If we start at the level of identity, I think then we can't explain what race is, what it does politically, uh, why it matters. And so far from dismissing race when I criticize identity politics, I'm arguing for a more robust and effective understanding of race. Now, the response that I witnessed in the conference presentation was a pretty, it seemed to me like people were assuming that what you were saying was that experience doesn't matter, and that experience shouldn't be a factor into constituting political doctrines or strategies. What would you say to that kind of criticism when you talk about race not being an identity category? This is a very complex theoretical question, and it's ultimately a question of ideology, I think, in the Marxist theoretical tradition. Experience obviously matters, and experience is something real. I have a particular experience of the way I live in this society. 
But the way that I make sense of my relationship to the social structure, to the social relations that constitute me and who I am and how I'm constrained to act, my experience of it is not the same as an understanding. So an understanding of the actual causes that underlie what I experience is something that is distinct from my experience. That doesn't mean that my experience isn't real. The experience is real. It is caused by these material factors, but it's not the same as an explanation of them. And so what that means is that in order to explain these material phenomena, these material relations, I can't just develop that out of my experience. It takes a separate process of theoretical production in order to arrive at that understanding. So experience is going to be obviously the level at which people develop an awareness of political problems. They develop an awareness of forms of oppression they experience. They develop an awareness of exploitation, of how a capitalist society affects them. And so this is indispensable. I mean, we, we, we can't get rid of these ideological moments, but we have to also engage in the kind of theoretical labor that allows us to understand uh, society. Well, I suppose in my experience in organizing spaces, something that might grade up against this claim that you're making, or maybe people would hold on to, is that it seems to me like people use experience as a claim to more authority on a subject and more authority to be able to provide political insights into that subject than maybe what your claim is suggesting. What do you say to that? I think empirically this isn't true. Uh, We know that many people, for example, who experience the most classical form of class exploitation don't have uh, a consciousness of class. I mean, this this is like a, a... major kind of discussion now among socialists about how to form class consciousness, do people have class consciousness, etc. And actually, before we even get into the identity thing, we can just talk at the level of the category of class consciousness, which exists in a certain kind of Marxism. I'm very critical of the concept because I don't think that consciousness is adequate to explain when people are able to act as a class, to engage in class struggle, Uh, because people have consciousnesses of many different kinds. Someone uh, who is a traditional industrial proletarian may have a consciousness that's largely determined by, say, national belonging, by family roles, uh, and so on. Uh, These are things that determine consciousness, and they're not they're not false consciousness because they represent real phenomena. You really are within national borders. You really do have a family structure which is determined historically. These are not illusions. And it also implies that there's a correct consciousness that's attainable at the same time, right? Precisely. And so I think that the more productive way of conceiving of this is not in terms of consciousness, but in terms of organization. Do we have a class organization that can actually act, that allows people to act? Uh, when you when you have disorganization, then people don't have this class consciousness that socialists want. If you have organization, then consciousness is an effect of organization. I think organization is prior to consciousness. And so I think that uh, when we talk about um, identity and people say that you know, the experience of a particular kind of oppression gives a unique and privileged kind of knowledge of that oppression. I think that this is not borne out in, in actual social practice. I think that in many cases, for example, at the level of race, 
There can be an everyday consciousness of race, which leads to reactionary nationalisms of the kind you described, in which various patriarchal forms are reproduced, in which there's a kind of individualistic ideal of advancement, of personal advancement. Experience can also lead to those ideas. So we can't distinguish good from bad ideas by appealing to the level of experience. Continuing on with the conversation about ideology, you also spend a lot of time in your book talking about this kind of level of relating to race as an identity category as generating what you call racial ideology. So what do you mean specifically when you talk about racial ideology? And also, I'm paraphrasing what you wrote, but you describe it as racial ideology is produced by racism, not the other way around. So can you elaborate more on that? So uh, racial ideology, along the lines that I've been saying, would be the idea that race comes out of the characteristics that inhere in me and who I am, perhaps at the level of my experience, but also at the level of, let's say, what uh, my skin looks like, what my hair is like, and so on. The very strong claim I want to make is that those things are not race. These are arbitrary physical characteristics, which we know from science don't correspond to anything like a meaningful category of human beings. In fact, the genetic variation within so-called races is greater than the average genetic variation between these races. The, the, The idea of racial ideology is quite simply the idea that race comes out of these characteristics that inhere in me. A rational understanding of the causes of race is one which sees how race is a social phenomenon, a social construct. We're familiar with the idea that race is a social construct, but what does that mean? It means that the arbitrary physical characteristics that people have are categorized according to a social hierarchy, according to a social classification system that emerges historically and that is not just contained in the way people are. And that means that You can't just make general claims about what race is. You have to look at historically specific forms of race and how they are produced. And so that's why in my book, I emphasize the what Theodore Allen called the invention of the white race, because another uh, kind of consequence of racial ideology is that whiteness is seen as the neutral, universal thing. Uh, Everybody else has a race, right? But the idea that there is a white race, which is constructed uh, and brings together various different supposed ethnic categories from Europe, this is a historical process that takes place starting in the 17th century colonial United States uh, and is a complex, uneven process for the next centuries. And so going beyond racial ideology means understanding these historically specific processes by which race is assigned to people rather than deriving race from the way people look or act or talk or the rest of it. Right. I really appreciate, too, the highlighting how whiteness under the category of race disappears. Because when we say race, very commonly, I imagine people are not conjuring up the idea of white people. <laughs> They're only thinking of people of color. And what you talk about in your book a little bit more is how much of a problem that becomes when we're generating concepts like privilege and how to hold people accountable for particular experiences of privilege and opportunities they have. So what are the problems with privilege politics when they're generated by an understanding of race as an ideology? 
what happens is that the behavior of an individual is seen to stand in for an entire social structure. And so that if you get an individual person to behave in some kind of different way, that that means undermining white privilege and so on. Well, the way that politics works is more complicated because obviously if people have uh, backwards practices, uh, which are white chauvinist practices, this is harmful to an organization, to any kind of political organization. They have to be changed. People like that have to be educated. But the means by which they are educated, the processes that take place, there's no like simple guidebook for how that happens in the most constructive way. If you have a process in which everybody's suddenly afraid to speak because they have some form of privilege in which they might be exposed and so on, this is not a, a fertile atmosphere for political organizing. And uh, the problem is, ultimately, all of us can be identified as having some form of privilege. Privilege uh, runs all the way down. And so an atmosphere in which anyone can be denounced is actually a kind of classical atmosphere in the left which has always destroyed us which is which is, we there's a very bad history of this and so we have to find ways of actually combating uh white chauvinism i don't want to say privilege because privilege isn't describing actual actions that are counterproductive privilege is just describing some kind of status that a person has but what really matters is how people act uh, and we want to change people's actions. We have to find ways of doing that that increase our collective power rather than undermining it. Well, and in your book, you describe an experience of organizing at a university space that I think really tellingly highlights how this privilege politics and racial ideology becomes a serious problem that undermines us. And I just want to say that it is incredibly similar to experiences that I've observed in college politics. Would you be willing to just describe briefly what that what happened in your organizing experience on universities? Like, what were the goals and ambitions, and how was it ultimately destroyed? Uh, I, I don't want to get too much into the story because I've already in the book I go into it, and it's probably more than uh, I should have said anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in in broad strokes, what what I can say is that. Um, multiracial organizing efforts were targeted by people who were distinguished not by race but by their politics who'd had different politics and they represented this antagonism as a racial one rather than a political one and so the movement became divided and many onlookers who weren't uh, directly involved in the day-to-day began to view the movement as a racist one because this uh, propaganda was so effective. As you say, it's a problem that comes up constantly and it's coming up now again, I think, in current organizing efforts in the same place. And I think it will take a lot of creativity to figure out how to counter that. Part of the problem today with political organizing is it seems like so many folks' first exposure to political struggle and political thought is through the academy and is particularly through the academy's creation of services like diversity projects and uh, cultural centers and like workshops on unpacking your privilege and so forth. 
And I think that what happens there is that because the university is neoliberal by design and can only conform to at best like a kind of mushy liberal politics, those kinds of ideas and those ways of like uh, unpacking your privilege, checking it, and these and racial ideology itself is very much facilitated by people's experience of becoming the politics through academic language. And I think that in the past, maybe there was more exposure to political struggle outside of academic spaces. I don't know. That's just an impression I have. What do you think about this idea? And is this part of something that maybe is contributing to racial ideology? Yeah, I think, I mean, universities are major sites of privilege with a comparison to most of the rest of the world and most of the spaces most people occupy during their daily lives. Of course, this doesn't mean there aren't real struggles within universities over people's living standards, um, uh, over the exploitation of people who work there and so on. But uh, it's a very specific sector of the society. It's one that is increasingly self-enclosed and cut off from the broader groups that constitute the society. When, for example, organizing efforts are seen to be insufficiently diverse, this is a common complaint. The relevant question to my mind is not, first and foremost, what is the racial composition of this particular meeting and so on, but the fact that it's constituted by people who are part of the same general milieu, who already know each other, who all are getting or have already gotten a college education. This is a very limited range to to have constituting a political group. And I think that the way to diversify uh, organizing efforts, including at the racial level, is by moving outside of these circles of college students, um, left-wing techies, and so on, that 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 are making up a lot of the contemporary left. How do you go beyond that and reach people who are who live in different neighborhoods, who work different kinds of jobs? These are questions that I think are not getting posed often enough. Well, I'd like to return back to class as something that should not be understood as an identity category, because you also talk about that. In particular, you highlight how within leftist discourse today, there's charges leveled against people of calling them class reductionists, which is clearly a thing that happens a lot. People are class reductionists. And you claim that class reductionism is in itself an identity category. So what do you mean by that? And like, how does that not help our class analysis? Yeah, so what I mean is that, just as I said that I don't think race should be understood as an identity, I don't think class should be understood as an identity. These aren't things that I don't want, I don't want to explain these things as part of our experience, but as part of impersonal social structures which shape our experience. Now, the sense that class becomes an identity is when a socialist politics becomes about affirming the dignity of labor, uh, of saying that uh, there is This group, which is the working class, which has a particular set of common interests, has a particular way uh, of understanding the world, a particular kind of class consciousness, and that the mission of socialism is to defend its interests. Now, this is something that is very distant from uh, Marxism, which had a very great insight in my view. Uh, The insight of Marxism was that overcoming the oppression of the working class meant not affirming the working class, but working for its abolition. 
that is the abolition of all classes. And so if you're in favor of the abolition of classes, this means that a defense of the working classes and as, as, as an identity can only at best be a provisional moment in the formation of a, uh, in, in, in the beginning of a political process. But I think that uh, very often today, those who get called class reductionists or whatever, see that as the, as the ultimate goal, the ultimate aim, rather than as a possible moment in the unfolding of the process of the abolition of classes. This experience or this insight is really um, close to me. I'm a labor organizer. And what I often ex- witness and observe is just rhetoric and slogans around like a fair day's wage for fair day's work, you know, $15 an hour minimum wages and these kinds of efforts to like create dignity and work that seems very much convinced that the imposition of capitalist work will always continue. I wonder if you feel similarly that about like anti-racist efforts, like maybe racial ideology itself is kind of a concession that racism is always going to exist. So the best we can do is kind of find out particular ways of affirming race instead of trying to abolish it. It's an interesting question. If you talk about abolishing race, people often take that to mean abolishing different kinds of cultures and different kinds of awareness of uh, affinity with others who share experiences and so on. And I mean, I I think that this is derailing the discussion uh, because such things will certainly always exist and their, their forms, their particular forms taken by human communities that are intrinsically valuable, uh, that have yielded um, great achievements of culture that we all uh, uh, benefit from. But the abolition of race as a material structure uh, is certainly in the interest of uh, human emancipation. Racial ideology, by shifting the discussion from the material relation to individual experience, precisely as you say, turns the struggle against racism into one which is about personal validation, personal advancement within the existing structures of race. And so uh, I agree with you there. Do you think that it's a fatalistic worldview, racial ideology? I think all ideology is kind of, it's a way of understanding the world in which everything always remains essentially the same. So I think that's, that's the way I would put it. In terms of improving our analysis, I think what you have to say about race and class is really interesting and identity as well. I want to like focus a little bit more on how improving analysis can help with our political programs. And particularly, you have an affinity towards what you call insurgent universality. So when universalism, and like maybe even more than some of the other topics we've talked about, is so disparaged on the left today and in the postmodern milieu that we swim in, why do you feel like going back to like a different kind of universalism is an appropriate political maneuver? To me, it has always been apparent that the struggle against racism is a universalist struggle. That is, that anybody who is interested in the emancipation of all of humanity is opposed to racism and takes up the cause of struggling against racism. I think this is absolutely obvious and intuitive to those who believe in human freedom. It has taken incredible contortions 
for the, again, the camp called class reductionist to somehow say that the struggle against racism is secondary or subordinate or particularistic. And also from the side of the advocates of identity politics to say that the struggle against racism is in the particular interests of a community and therefore does not have universal relevance. The way that I would put it now is that what is being lost is the perspective of emancipation itself. That is, the possibility of the emancipation of all of humanity, which in Marxism was understood as the project of a particular class. In Marx's earliest writings, the reason that he identifies the class struggle as central and that the proletariat as the revolutionary class is that he believes it will liberate all of humanity. It's not because of uh, something to do with like the physiological reality of class as compared to something else. I mean, you know, uh, there's a way that people have now of talking about mater- uh, talking about materialism as though materialism says that class is the most fundamental because that's what has to do with whether you can eat and whether you get shelter and all of these ma- obviously material needs. Well. If you're thrown out of your home or you can't find a place to live because uh, there's discrimination uh, on the basis of your race, this is equally material. If people are forced to labor by being whipped, this is material. That is, I think, a, a serious theoretical muddle. If you have the perspective of emancipation, you are opposed to all forms of domination. And the Social analysis that you do uh, has to be from that perspective. And if if you take this perspective, then a particularist struggle is not going to be adequate. But any struggle can be particularist. A class struggle at one given workplace is a particular struggle. It's not inherently universal. If there's a socialist case that struggling for higher wages in one particular workplace is universal. I think this is not convincing on the face of it, because it's it's in a particular context. It's a particular demand. All demands are always particular. Uh, the universalism of them comes if they are part of a project for universal emancipation. And here, the distinctions between class and race and so on are taking us back to that level of abstraction that illuminates nothing. Well, and it seems too that you're also contrasting this understanding of universalism with some of the ways that it's been taken up in like uh, the United Nations and some of the legal doctrines that claim a universalism as an abstraction, like a universalism that highlights some values that are inalienable and endemic to all human species and so forth. So how is insurgent universalism contrast to that kind of universalism that I think people are more familiar with? So the idea is that the universal is not something that just already exists. Even when you look at, for example, the um, classical declarations of universal rights, say the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen in the French Revolution, it's a declaration which says that These rights are natural and eternal. They exist across history, across geographical boundaries, and apply to all humans as a result of their nature. And yet, they had to be brought into being through a revolution. They had to be proclaimed, and then they are proclaimed again. And then across history, such things are proclaimed over and over again, even though they're supposedly natural. Even uh, certain articles 
of the uh, of these declarations say these rights have to be revised. We have to update this. Future generations will have to update this. So universal categories have to be brought into being. The idea that they are somehow insurgent represents this, that the universal is not what already exists. The universal is what is brought into being when existing forms of exclusion, existing forms of domination are opposed and put into question. That's when you have something that's universal. As a way of kind of wrapping this conversation up, I was wondering what have been kind of the key forms of feedback you've received from your work on race and class in your book, particularly those that criticize it, and maybe give you just an opportunity and a platform to kind of address some of the common misunderstandings that you've encountered. Well, I mean, you should prompt me on the misunderstandings. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think are the... Well, I don't know. I, I, know, that in, I know that in your book, you mentioned that uh, you often get written down as like um, a white socialist that is a class reductionist. So I'm certain that's one. But are there other forms of feedback that you just want to correct or address in some way? I was frequently criticized as a white socialist for the first year after the book appeared, like maybe for the first half of the year, I was frequently criticized as a white socialist. Then suddenly a review of my book appeared, which was from a class reductionist vantage point, which saw me as insufficiently class reductionist. And I, I, I don't subscribe to class reductionism. So this was an accurate criticism. The review, which I responded to, this is the only review I've responded to, but uh, it was... Um, so polemical in a kind of unnecessary way. It was not tactically sound to write a review of a Marxist critique of identity politics and claim that it was too soft on identity politics. It just didn't look good. And uh, a lot of people, I think, got upset about it. So that changed the discussion a lot. Because now for a whole group of people, I was uh, associated with identity politics. I became an advocate of identity politics. And since then, um, the debate, which I, I mean, I don't, I can't say I'm totally up to date on the way that it's being discussed, but a lot of it is very confusing. Uh, and I think in some cases, it's based on people not reading the book, but responding to the various positions taken on social media or in other reviews. But you might know better than me what there is to respond to or what there is to clarify. On a anecdotal level, I haven't gotten a ton of critical feedback of the book. And I think it's actually similar to what you're saying is I can't get people to read the book <laughs> or actually engage in the content. And so maybe that's something to talk about is what is happening within, maybe it's not even accurate to describe it within the leftist discourse, but just in general discourse today where content and books and the actual substance of an argument are often just not even paid attention to. But instead, what happens is debate at the level of threads online or just arguments that are more of an interpersonal nature. Is this maybe a, another expression of identity politics undermining the left and our prospects today? Many features of identity politics, as I discuss it in my book, correspond to this, and maybe it's part of a larger trend or a larger set of trends. I mean, the personalization of political positions. I mean, the way that uh, we, were, we were talking earlier about the way that experience becomes such an important category. One of the problems with that is that if politics is equated with personal experience, then frequently political disagreements end up taking the form of attacking another person. 
when fighting out disputes by attacking another person is done online, is done on social media, in real time, constantly throughout the day, and a back and forth in which people aren't stopping to check their sources or to even take a deep breath and think about what they're saying. Politics just totally gets shut down by this. I don't think it's so important for people to read my book. I think, though, that uh, those who comment on it would be advised to read it first. It would be better. I think that uh, it kind of became a screen on which different factions projected their positions or, or how they wanted to represent their adversaries. And I think it would be more interesting to have a discussion of the sub- substantive issues because there are many, you know, I, I wrote a short book um, and there are many interesting discussions and debates to have about these topics beyond what is contained in the book. And, and maybe people are raising them, and, uh, but, but, but I don't know. Well, as we conclude, is there anything that you want to highlight or just talk about as a kind of a final word on the matter? What I think is most pressing right now is to combat this climate that we were just discussing, which in, in a recent article I described as depoliticization, in which the performance of political positions, personalized disputes, and so on, are taking the place of politics. And I think along the lines of what earlier we were talking about in terms of insurgent universality, politics is when something new is created, a new possibility is created, which puts the existing world into question. I mean, this is, this is why revolutions are examples of politics. What we need today is not to have a debate over race versus class or re- even reform versus revolution or something like that uh, in a way that kind of guarantees a politics in some kind of story about history or some kind of story about human nature or whatever or based on the idea that models from a century ago or can just be copy and pasted into the present. We need real politics, which is the creation of something new, and we need an emancipatory politics, a politics which is about liberating all of humanity. And I think within the left, there are the abstract disputes over race and class, identity politics versus class reductionism and so on. These are obstacles. But it's also an obstacle, uh, and we, we, we got to this a little bit with a general topic of ideology, it's also an obstacle when we can't conceive of any other form of human life, that we think that higher wages, uh, universal health care, and so on, are the only possible goals that can be achieved, and that winning elections and working within the existing political structure is the only way that we can achieve them. Which isn't to say that there shouldn't be struggles for universal health care, that it would be bad if some politicians were elected who introduced a life-saving reform. These are good things if they happen. How to make them happen is a complicated question. The overall perspective has to be one which says that we can conceive of human life in which people are not dependent on wages for survival. Not only that they should make higher wages, but that we should not have to depend on wages in order just to live, and that we should be able to control our our own lives as members of a human community 
rather than transferring our power to people who to a to to a minority that defends its position with weapons and prisons it's possible i think to conceive of a society beyond that to say another world is possible is maybe in some ways premature because we don't know that the powers exist that can bring another world into being we don't have that organization we don't have that struggle at this stage but if we can say that it's possible to conceive of a different form of human life i think that this is a necessary perspective uh, to have an emancipatory politics oh that this has been a really great conversation enjoyed having you on the show and i hope we can have you again in the future hey thank you 